Hello and welcome to episode eight of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Paris Anand, Chief Investment Officer for Asia Pacific at Fidelity International. And in this podcast, we're taking a closer look at trade and the other drivers of China's economic growth. Last year, China overtook the US as the biggest destination for foreign direct investment. And despite a rolling backdrop of geopolitical friction, where trade relations have taken center stage, the country remains by far the world's biggest exporter. And even in a global pandemic, China has advanced. It was the only major economy to report positive GDP growth in 2020. But where does it go from here? Like others, China has racked up high levels of debt and an aging population is seeing a shift in the country's demographics and labor force. And what happens once we see the back of COVID and the rest of the world catches up? Will a rollback of globalization and the rise of regional trade still play in China's favor? And how should investors plan for it? With me today to help us understand where the fuel for China's future lies, I have three of Fidelity's investment team. They are in Shanghai, Alex Zhang, an analyst and equity portfolio manager. Alex, what do you think is going to be the most exciting aspect of China's growth for investors over the next five years? Thanks, Paris. Short answer. I think the most exciting growth drivers for China next five to 10 years are technological innovation, digitalization of the entire society, green lifestyle as the new normal, and the consumption upgrade. Thanks, Alex. And joining Alex is Wenwen Lindroth, a lead cross-asset strategist on our macro team in London. Wen Wen, I mentioned in the introduction about China's outperformance, both in economic and asset market terms last year. What does that signify? Their really good performance over 2020 and handling of the COVID pandemic signifies um, the acceleration of their emergence as a global economic superpower. It's also given the policymakers breathing room in terms of addressing their long-term goals, which include um, the dual circulation strategy, focusing on the high-tech sectors, as Alex mentioned, and also um, some room for them to manage down or manage their macro leverage situation. And finally, we have Marty Dropkin, head of Asia Fixed Income based in Hong Kong. Marty, China's onshore bond market has seen an influx of foreign investors of late. What's the one piece of advice you'd offer to anyone looking at the asset class? I I think, Paris, for for investors interested in China, it's patience. As you said, there's been an influx uh, from, from international capital flowing into Chinese bond markets but it will gradually open up. And I think for those investors who continue to see China as an opportunity, just be patient because the government has a clear plan to open up the bond markets, but it will take a little bit of time as things progress. Excellent. Thank you all for joining me today. So let's start with China's position as a trading nation. It's coming off the back of four years of tense relations with the US, one of its biggest trading partners. We saw a slew of new tariffs and trade barriers come into force. Wen Wen, can you set the scene for us? How does Chinese trade flows look today? Yes, it's been actually a fascinating couple of years, Paris. Um, So leading up to COVID, because of the trade wars, um, China's exports to the U.S. had declined some 20 to 30 percent in certain sectors at certain times. 
But then when COVID happened, um, it really changed the picture globally because it was first out of the pandemic and lifted its lockdown restrictions um, at the end of the first quarter. We started to see China's exports, particularly of medical equipment, PPE, computers used um, to work from home, really push their exports up. And then when the rest of the world started to come out of lockdown and global demand began to pick up, China's exports really just took off. And what we saw was that China also took market share from trade competitors. And by the end of 2020, the level of exports was actually 60% higher year over year at the very end of the year. And, and Alex, from your viewpoint in Shanghai, what would you say is the legacy of the Trump years on China's own economic strategy? Sure. Um, I think some people said the trade war initiated by Trump was like a wake-up call for China to review its policy of trade and other foreign affairs. Um, but actually, the Belt and Road Multinational Cooperation Framework was announced in March 2015, which was even before Trump announced his uh, candidacy for president. So China has already realized the importance of enhancing the regional trade integration long time ago. The Sino-U.S. trade tension only reminded China for the urgency. Um, and also given China already holds strong economic relationship with the regional partners in a traditional global trade framework, the foundation of the regional trade deal is readily there. So the deals such as RCEP could further enhance capital and the technological transfer within the region and optimize the resource allocation across all members in the region. So I think China is uh, still on its own track uh, to enhance the regional trade. You know, it's so interesting that you talk about those trade deals that have come into place when we think about that kind of backdrop of, of geopolitical tension. I mean, Marty, turning to you, how, how do you build the geopolitical risks into the investment process? I mean, it's, it's a critical question, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, as we kind of think about the cost of capital, particularly in the Chinese fixed income markets, how Ch Chinese government bonds, which today trade just over 3%, and, you know, at quite a significant yield pickup, if we look at that in a global context versus Europe, which has negative rates. Now, clearly, there's some technical reasons for that. But I think this sort of geopolitical dynamic is directly reflected in the rates themselves. But I, so I think there's one sort of outright way to look at it, which is, well, some of this is priced in. But I think the other aspect, which is really interesting, Paris, is, is sort of the link to sustainability, and, you know, the way that China is sort of racing ahead with uh, integrating, you know, green bonds into its regular issuance. And so I think that links to geopolitical risk in the sense that the race towards more sustainable capital and more kind of this race to kind of see who's going to be first to build a more a, a more sustainable infrastructure China's clearly racing ahead. And I think, you know, as we look towards COP26, it'll, it'll, it'll sort of advance those discussions even more. That links so well with the point that Alex made, which is that, that some of the challenges that are represented by that geopolitical environment are in many ways causing elements of acceleration in economic strategy, be that around sustainability, be that around sort of capital markets. Now, to hear more on China's trading volumes, investment director Catherine Young has been speaking to portfolio manager Bertrand Puif. He has been watching the shipping container sector and the jaw-dropping backlog of cargo ships that have been building up on the U.S. West Coast. Here's what he thinks it tells us about the future of global trade. 
Thanks so much for joining us today, Bertrand. Thank you. Now, as a portfolio manager with a big focus in the Nordic shipping industry, you've been looking closely at shipping volumes over the past year or so, and in particular, the Danish listed company Maersk. And Maersk, of course, is the biggest continental shipper in the world, with about a quarter of its total volumes running between the US and China. So interested to hear whether the trade dispute between these two large economies has caused much of a dent in its overall operations. Well, the answer is not so much. And if you look, you know, over the last five years, definitely there's been you know, a continuation of the secular trend, which is up between three and five percent in terms of volumes. Uh, except for 2019, where some of the distributors in the U.S. that were reducing their inventories because they were fearing we were at the end of an economic cycle. And then 2020, some kind of, you know, H1 was obviously, as we know, uh, quite weak. Uh, but H2 was extremely strong because, you know, the U.S. consumer was in front of his uh, iPad or PC and just consuming on Amazon. And they were ordering basically a lot of consumer goods that were manufactured and then shipped from China. So pretty counterintuitive when you think of all that we've seen going on between the Trump administration and the Chinese government. So could you please give us a sense of just how big this overall demand actually is? Well, I mean, um, the, the demand is obviously boosted by all the, the stimulus we are seeing in the U.S., and, you know, there's been these checks to U.S. consumers. And uh, this year, obviously, we are expecting this huge 1.9 trillion stimulus to uh, also stimulate the consumer demand. The Fed is expecting that out of this 1.9 trillion, 360 billion should be, you know, will go to imported goods, among which 60 billion, 60 will come from Chinese consumer goods imported in the US. And this is the equivalent of 0.4% of the Chinese GDP. So this is quite significant. And this is basically one of the reasons we are already seeing some kind of historical queue uh, at the Los Angeles ports. Uh, it's around a couple of weeks currently compared with uh, normally uh, a couple of days. And we are not expecting this to normalize uh, until, you know, the middle of next year. Yeah, it's interesting. So for all this talk about the regionalization of trade and supply chains, it seems that globalization is very much alive and kicking. Yes, definitely, especially for consumer goods. And, and given the, the habits of the U.S. consumer, uh, I'm expecting that at least over the next few years, we should continue to see that. I, I don't think that the regionalization will apply for this type of basically traits uh, in the near future. Now, Bertrand, just sticking on the consumer, but taking a different angle, and, and I want to talk about ESG. So, you know, big container shipping is a, is, you know, a large polluter. There's a lot of attention being focused on this part of, of sort of the industry. And with growing concerns amongst consumers about the impact their actual spending habits indeed have on our planet, wouldn't this be a big driver towards more local and less global? Alors, the good news is that unlike the air cargo traffic where, you know, it's going to take time before we find a clean fuel. We are close to have that basically in the shipping industry. And there, it will be like a big revolution where you will see those ships that, you know, I completely agree with you currently are polluting a lot, uh, polluting much, much less. And maybe some of them will be you know, polluting zero. And there is currently at the IMO, which is the international body in charge of managing the global, you know, shipping fleet. There are a lot of ongoing discussions about the fuel of the future. And uh, it's likely to be either ammonia or ethanol. And uh, it's something, obviously, that will improve significantly the carbon footprint of those ships. 
and uh, and we could see a continuation of this substitution from hair to shipping because of that, and this could be like a very strong ESG driver for those companies. Bertrand, so great speaking to you. Thank you again for joining me. Thank you. Bertrand Puif there talking to Catherine Young, highlighting how trade flows have continued despite the measures taken in some quarters to try and temper them. Now, when, when, you know, I think the picture that Bertrand paints is the idea that there's some of this concern around the weakness of convoluted supply chains, the um, imperative to maybe look at sort of shorter chains or bringing them, in fact, within borders is going to happen. But it's unfair to say that that is negating uh, global trade. And in fact, what this regionalization does is in some ways kind of just build a more resilient system overall. But if we were to take a, a step back and think about the outlook for um, trade for China in 2021, what are your what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so um, d- definitely agree with you, Paris, uh, that uh, the idea of resiliency over the long term it's an important one. Um, in the near term, over the course of this year, the global recovery is going to be a very powerful driver for for trade overall, um, with China benefiting. There are a couple of little headwinds to to take note of. Um, one of them is decline in exports of PPE. Um, another is the recovery among trade competitors. And then a third thing that we're focused on um, in the global macro team is virus mutations and the potential for relapse in certain countries if these mutations really spread. But uh, the base case is for China's exports to grow about 8% um, this year, particularly in the first half. Alex, net exports have been really incredibly important for China's formidable GDP growth. And trade surpluses will continue. But listening to the latest MPC meeting, it sounds as though the shape of economic growth is going to change. Is that true? Yes, Paris. Um, I think according to China's 14th five-year plan and the long-range objectives through the year 2035, it will continue to put into practice the vision of innovative, coordinated, green, open and inclusive development. And China aims to further open up for sure. But the trade war actually reminds China for the importance of necessary self-reliance. As a result, China raised uh, the concept of dual circulation, uh, which mentioned by Wenwen previously, uh, in which the domestic economic cycle plays a leading role, while the international economic cycle remains its extension and the supplement. I think the objective condition that supports China to make this change is the fact that China has passed the stage of absolute shortage of capital and technology and has higher bargaining power over foreign investment. So in the first few decades of opening up, you see China offered supranational treatment to FDI in order to attract capital inflow and the exchange market for technology. But in the year 2010, China clearly expressed the view that it welcomes the FDI in the industries of advanced technology, service, energy saving, and environmental protection, and it will impose limitation over those heavy pollution and uh, energy consumption. So into the next five to 10 years, such preference, I think, would be even more obvious. So I think FDI, which could enhance China's technological innovation, green development, and corporate governance, will continue to be welcomed. Um, and it's it will be in line with what China is uh, aiming for. So thinking about that growth strategy, how does fiscal policy play a role in that, Wenwen? 
So fiscal is still definitely there for China. It has pivoted away from just the enormous program that it had after the GFC. Basically, uh, you know, China invested around 50% of GDP into um, infrastructure through those programs over a 10-year period. Coming out of COVID, um, it's trying to moderate its macro leverage. It's also trying to focus more on consumption in domestic manufacturing, less on roads and bridges. Additionally, um, because macro leverage grew so much over the last 10 years, they need to be careful um, with their spending and to try to control it. And so we are going to see a moderation in the fiscal deficit from um, 13 to 14 percent in 2020 to something more like 10 to 11 percent in 2021. And of course, one of the things that plays a big role in, I guess, global perceptions of the debt situation in China is really the outlook for foreign investment into uh, not just the economy, but into the capital markets as well. And I guess, Marty, that sort of brings us back to this idea of the possibility for the bond markets really to kind of take off and be a a source of real attraction for global foreign capital. Yeah. and, And it picks up on that theme about China government bonds in particular, their attractiveness to to international portfolios. What investors are really starting to focus on, though, now is is kind of edging into other areas of the Chinese bond markets. And clearly, you know, there's a well-functioning uh, equity market that investors are quite familiar with outside of China. China government bonds are something that people are generally familiar with. But the corporate bond market is tiny. When I say it's tiny, what I mean is it's tiny allocation still of international ownership because it's a massive market. It's a $4 trillion market, but really unearthed almost by international investors. And I think think that's where we'll start to see more and more attention focus. And anything that you think could hamper that sort of flow of foreign capital? There are concerns, but I think it's improbable, Paris. You know, when when you think about the state of the pension gap and when you think about the need for pension funds to continue to to fund their own liabilities, um, you know, Chinese yields, particularly if you think about Chinese government bonds at in excess of 3%, as we've already mentioned, will remain attractive. And this hunt for yield is incessant. So I, I think I think it will it will largely work its way through the system. And I think, you know, high debt levels in China, which are a little bit of a concern now, will probably start to normalize and investors will find this the, the attractiveness of particularly of the bond markets in China will start to morph that, that concern about high debt levels over time. Crystal Sway, a credit analyst based in Shanghai, has been telling our Asia editor, Neil Goff, about the activity that she's been seeing in China's bond market. Hi, Crystal. Investors in developed markets are facing low-yield environments for the foreseeable future. There's a growing interest in regions where markets are able to offer something more. China and its bond market is one such area. What are you seeing on the ground in Shanghai in terms of foreign demand for this asset class? Actually, it has been quite clear trend that uh, global investors' participation in, in China's fixed income market has been uh, increasing over the past years. So we are seeing that by the end of February this year, there are already close to 3.7% foreign holdings of the onshore bonds. And that compares to little over 1% of holdings by them a few years back. 
So in terms of that, that kind of big uptick in foreign interest, what are you putting that down to? What is, what is the driving force behind that? I think there are a few different factors at play here. Uh, first off, there is the, the grand macro backdrop where China is gradually opening up its financial markets uh, versus its previously tight capital control. And another propelling factor is the inclusion into global bond indices, including those by Bloomberg Barclays, JP Morgan, and, and FTSE Russell, which led to massive passive inflows. And finally, even for active allocation, there are also justifications for investment into China domestic bonds, given firstly, as you mentioned, the uh, yield pickup versus development market bonds, which are sometimes in negative territory. And secondly, the supportive currency trend recently due to China's supportive net export, capital inflows, and better stability compared to other emerging market currencies, given it's still a managed currency regime to some extent. And finally, China bonds is sometimes referred to as having negative correlation to other asset classes, which could be a good trait for portfolio construction. So all this is kind of pointing in one direction, but how long do you think this continues or, or how much bigger do you think this can get? In fact, the trend of foreign participation is increasingly being watched as nowadays they uh, absorb meaningful percentage of bond supply in the onshore market and could affect valuation of those securities. And from my part, I expect the inflow picture to be supportive, at least for those government bonds and policy bank bonds. The um, policymakers do not seem concerned about the current over 10% foreign holdings, and they are in fact even working to improve the infrastructure for foreign access, such as allowing um, them to buy the more liquid government bond futures on top of the cash bonds. What is the outlook for corporate bonds in China then? Their holding in the corporate or other credit bonds is still quite subdued, accounting for less than 1% of the total universe. Looking forward, the trajectory could be certainly positive given the current low base, but global investors might still have concerns, uh, including the thin trading liquidity, lack of internationally comparable ratings, um, the default risk, and the sometimes low recovery pro prospect in cases of default. We are already seeing some positive developments in these regards, but I would expect the overall improvement to take some time. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much, Crystal. Thanks, Neil. That's Crystal Sway there talking to Neil Goff. Marty, I really want to dig in on that point around default risk that, that Crystal mentioned. We saw a number of defaults towards the end of 2020 by some of those big state-owned enterprises. Should that give investors pause for thought? It should give investors pause for thought, but but I also think it should give investors optimism because one thing we know about a well-functioning bond market is that defaults are a natural part of a credit cycle. And so, you know, this is something that is relatively new in China. And I think the fact that we're starting to see defaults enter the marketplace and that, you know, China is now allowing companies which might not have longevity to them, which might not have sustainability to them let them go under in a way, a restructure in some cases, is a positive sign that bond investors are, are looking at. It does scare people because it's new, but at the end, it's, it's, it's actually the sign of a really well-functioning bond market.
a sign of almost like the maturing phase of of the bond markets. And and on this topic of well-functioning credit markets and moral hazard, we have a great article by portfolio manager Alvin Cheng, and we'll put a link to that in the episode notes. Now, talking about efficiently run credit markets and asset markets in general, when, when, where is China on that road? There are three main platforms for trading China onshore bonds, um, one being the QFI platform, a second being CIBM, and a third being Bond Connect. Um, The largest and most liquid of these is CIBM. Um, Bond Connect uh, is a startup, and it does offer certain attractive features that the other two don't. Um, For example, it's got a custodian bank offshore in Hong Kong, um, making it easier for foreign investors to participate. But uh, overall, just to reiterate, you know, what what we understand um, is that the government is trying to facilitate access for foreign capital flows into China and being quite solicitous to bring those flows in. Yeah, and and QFI is a qualified foreign institutional investor scheme and CIBM is the China uh, international bond market. Alex, turning to you, I mean, capital is important, but where to use capital is arguably more so. I mean, it used to be directed to labor and fixed assets, but demographics are sort of bringing an end to that era. Um, demographics, and as you touched on earlier, technological innovation. So what happens next? Yes, Paris, you're totally right. I think the aging population uh, is one of the most structural challenges faced by China today. And China's uh, annual births dropped from 20 to 21 million in 1990s to around 16 to 17 million in 2000 and to 14.6 million in 2019. So even the relaxation from one-child policy to two-children policy didn't help. So as a result, um, China's working age population peaked in 2011. In January 2019, experts forecasted 2029 to be the peaking timing of China's total population. But in March this year, experts pushed that timing to 2025, given the rapidly deteriorating birth situation. So I think the declining of working age population would impact the supply side of the economy and impose pressure on China's potential growth rate. In fact, China's GDP growth has slowed down from over 9% before 2011 to around 6% in 2019. With labor supply not contributing growth and China's total debt to GDP ratio exceeding 300%, as Wenwen mentioned, China has to focus on labor productivity and total factor productivity for the source of growth in the coming 10 years. So I think further urbanization and technological innovation would be the major solution for this challenge. And what about the services industry? I mean, how do we see the services industry evolving over the coming over the coming years? Sure. Uh, and back to the point, uh, the plateauing of the total population and the aging population would impact the demand side of the economy and in turn cap China's growth potential. But China still have meaningful potential in expanding household consumption, given the high savings ratio and the still rising per capita income. And also, very importantly, Chinese consumer uh, has not yet consumed enough service compared to the developed countries. So I think going forward, the consumption upgrade, especially the upgrade in the service consumption, uh, would continue to support China's consumption growth and also GDP growth. Just to pick up on that, I think, you know, the whole concept of dual circulation 
and the way I think China is trying to manage domestic demand and growth in domestic demand versus you know inbound demand is is going to be something really important to watch. And I think very linked to that is the currency. And if and if you look at something that international investors are really asking us a lot about, it's it's the strength of the RMB, which is you know hovering around six and a half to the dollar right now. I think inv investors will pay very close attention to that as they consider this whole trade impact. I think China is really looking to kind of balance this domestic growth versus international growth, and the currency will play a really important part in that going forward. I mean, before the pandemic, there was this real fear about the devaluation of of the RMB, and we saw actually the RMB losing value against the US dollar in the, in the sort of the period running into the the pandemic. And then, of course, you have this global economic shock, which is really meant to be a test of the China economy. And then we saw through that period that rather than buckling under the weight of debt or the impact on the economy, actually we saw the, the renminbi rally very strongly uh, over that period. Um, you know, what is your reflection on this and, and maybe putting it in the context of China's ambition to internationalize the RMB? China clearly has an agenda to internationalize its currency, to, you know, perhaps move it more towards a reserve currency. That will take time, of course, but I think a stable renminbi, uh, a strengthening renminbi will be key to that. One of the things we're seeing now is significant demand for Chinese bonds because of that strengthening of the currency. And I think it also links into Hong Kong as its own investment center. And, uh, you know, the Hong Kong dollar is obviously pegged to the U.S. dollar. One of the things I think we could see is a blending of things over time. So perhaps uh, even uh, the Chinese currency becomes more prevalent in Hong Kong. And uh, over time, we see this kind of morphing of things. And that will be part of that internationalization of, of the Chinese currency over time. Now, before I end, um, I'd just like to ask each of you, what are some of the key investment implications of what we've heard today? Alex? Yeah, so implication from the trend we are seeing is to invest into the structural trends in China, probably the winning strategy for us. Uh, some example I can think of are the innovation-focused business in the area of digitalization, high-end manufacturing, and also those leading Chinese brands benefiting from the consumption upgrade, business benefiting from the green lifestyle and the carbon neutrality, and business benefiting from the aging population. Thank you, Alex. Wen Wen? So in terms of um, sectors where we would invest, um, we like CGBs, um, as Marty mentioned. You've got attractive uh, nominal and uh, positive real yield. Um, you've also got great technicals uh, with the inclusion of CGBs and international indices. And probably, you know, muted inflation pressures are going to help CGBs as well. Um, and then we also like Chinese equities versus rest of Asia right now, given the underperformance versus other Asian country equities in the, the first part of this year. Thanks, Wen Wen. Marty? I think one of the interesting themes that we need to focus on is, is competition in a way. And just as we're recording this podcast, we're starting to see news out of the U.S. for stimulus packages. And what's interesting about the news out of the U.S. is it's the very same sectors that we're talking about that China is focusing on. Now, I think that should be symbiotic. And, you know, in the U.S. investing, China investing should contribute to better overall global growth. 
But I think the competitiveness will be a really interesting dynamic to watch. And I think in many ways, you know, I think what global investors need to get increasingly comfortable with is that these phenomena that we've been talking about that appear in some ways sort of contradictory can actually sort of coexist. So despite the sort of the pandemic arguing for regionalization of trade, we're actually seeing global trade continuing to boom. And again, despite the fact that we have all of this geopolitical friction, that capital flows to China look set not just to persist, but in fact to accelerate. So it's been a fantastic discussion. Thank you all. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you to my guests, Wenwen Lindroth, Marty Dropkin and Alex Zhang, and to our other contributors, Crystal Sway and Bertrand Puif. And thank you for listening. If you want to read more of what's been covered today, then please go to our website, fidelityinternational.com. And if you want to listen to more episodes of The Investor's Guide to China, just search for that title in your podcast app. The producers today were Seb Morton-Clark and Neil Goff, with production support from Tommy Sue, Alex Wilcox and Madison Fletcher. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.